the political dark. From Pavement to Parliament Street, this is your podcast from the York Politics Society. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Political Duck. This is a exciting one for us because it's our first tie-in with the Politics Society talk. So we will be talking to Professor Joao Nunes over his uh, the recent talk he did on Brazil, uh, which we're very excited for. Um, and this is part of a kind of general tie-in we want to do. So if there are any talks you either weren't able to attend or attended but wanted some more detail please message us on our instagram and then we can you know we can try and sort something out but first i've got to ask a very important question christian what the duck is going on so the barclays boss jess stanley has um, stepped down following a watchdog finding um, links between him and um, the alleged paedophile jeffrey epstein uh, chairman of the Yorkshire Cricket Club, uh, Roger Hutton, has resigned over a failure to respond to reports of racism by former player Azim Rafiq. Uh, Yorkshire are now also banned from hosting England matches. And obviously, following the stuff from Ollie Robinson in the summer, this is sort of a, generally shown to be a wider issue with kind of cricket and racism, which really needs to be nipped in the bud. On to the main, um, the juicy topic of the week, mm-hmm. rather. Um, so Owen Patterson, um, the MP for North Shropshire, has resigned as MPs, um, following on from MPs um, making a U-turn on their on their vote to to save his skin, um, and and not to punish him over lobbying claims. So from the top, um, for those of you who have not been keeping up to date with this, um, my housemates, I am calling you out right now. <laughs> um, so secondary jobs are allowed in Parliament. They, they're, they're allowed, but he was earning about £100,000 from his two consultancies, and the problem was that he was lobbying on behalf of these, um, these two or three consultancies. Now, from his side, he claims that he's using the exception rule to the, to the, the, the lobbying um, prohibition, um, that you can bring a serious wrong to the attention of members of Parliament, um, and so this wrong... Um, was, was that his companies brought to his attention that inside milk was a serious carcinogen and he called it a dereliction, quote, a dereliction of his duty not to make the House aware of this. Now, he said that he's, he's brought to the, the, house, um, the House's attention um, on three occasions of this carcinogen. However, the Commission, um, the commission found that on 14 accounts there, there was a, derelic- um, there was a, um, a lobbying um, side of his of his of his ministership, um, and the government obviously on Wednesday voted. They voted to only by a only by a small margin. I think it was about 14, 14 votes to not follow on from the commission's findings. Um, this of course caused a um, a PR nightmare for the Conservatives. And yesterday, um, regretfully, in his view, resulted in his resignation. I don't know if you have anything to say about that, Sam. You know, on the one hand, it's just Tory sleaze, isn't it? But just general... Mm. I, I'm not just going to say Tory sleaze. General MP sleaze, and we've seen it with things like the expenses scandal in the past, that I feel that more of the issue is that these rules are rather grey, in that I feel this stuff only really works if you're quite binary about it. Either say it's all fine or it's not fine at all. You can't have second jobs. Because otherwise you get these sort of situations where that can be perceived a grey area. And, you know, we're talking about an MP's job here. We're not, you know, you know, we're not talking about the offside rule, quite frankly. Because um, you've seen this sort of stuff where, in a more complicated case, for instance, when Philip Green was exposed, the Lord who exposed it was uh, being paid or had links to the uh, law firm who were trying to sue him. It's not binary, and I feel that it's more the the rules about money in the governments need to be really clarified. Definitely, and one of his <coughs> one of his criticisms of the system was that he was not met, or the the commissioner would not meet with him to discuss these allegations for seventeen months um, after the inquiry was opened. Which I'm quite agnostic about this view because it's the parliament should have. Um, autonomy and, and the Commission should have autonomy over the 
over the situation. But 17 months seems seems a bit too long. Um, yeah, he, he could have done something about it in that time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So moving on, um, the MP Claudia Webb, or the ex-MP Claudia Webb, has, has been given a two-year um, a suspended sentence um, in, in Parliament over the conviction of harassment. Now, um, Webb has also been asked to carry out 200 hours of unpaid work and told to pay £3,128 in costs and surcharges. Now, this comes um, after um, she threatened and harassed Michelle Merritt, who was a, um, a long-term friend um, of her partner, Lester Thomas, uh, between September 2018 and April of, of last year. And so uh, the, the case is, I suppose the case is closed now. So the, she's, she's not going to be in Parliament for two years um, and she's got some uh, mandatory and non-paid public work to do. Mm. And rightly so. Yeah, you, you can't harass no, people, uh, it's quite frankly. Um, the Israeli spyware company NSO Group is now on the US blacklist for what are being claimed to be threats to democracy. And there's also on the sort of subject of America, there's been a series of state elections that have happened in the US. Uh, so Glenn Youngkin becomes the, has become the first Republican governor of Virginia in over a decade. Democrat Phil Murphy uh, won the governor, uh, become governor of New Jersey, but only by 0.8% of the vote. And Democrat Eric Adams become has become mayor of New York, the second African-American mayor in New York history, and uh, called to the end of, I uh, quote, all this division. Um, the kind of the overall take has been that this is a quite a serious vote of no confidence on the Biden administration losing Virginia, but also the kind of how slimly they were able to retake New Jersey, given that the major, uh, given I think there's a majority of paid up Democrat voters in New Jersey. It, it shows that people are not necessarily happy with the Biden administration. And, you know, New York is very staunchly partisanly Democrat sort of interesting to think with all this division that he's talking about. But yeah, those, this doesn't look good for the Biden government. No, and um, just on the on Eric Adams's um, election victory, mm. um, calling for the end of all this division. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a I'm a partisan hack. I think <laughs> I think politics is division by definition, and there's a there's a there's a certain um, atmosphere in American politics where. Um, if you if you say you're on the side of unity and on and not on the side of division, you you're some some kind of some kind of a saint, um, and I, I don't I don't like that. And peop, um, I think I think it was Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton that said um, we need we need less we need need less heat in politics and more light. As if as if heat if as if light does not come from heat already. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 it's. it's Awful stuff. I think it's um, a tendency to put the faith for the people of America to put the faith in in, in people like this because they they like to live they li- like to live vicariously through someone who who makes politics seem seem smooth and seem like a, all things to all men. It's mm. it's too much hassle for us to to delve into politics for the for the layman and and I don't I don't, I don't like that. I think if people knew about Eric Adams and um, very serious allegations against his second and third property, um, which he did not report to the Department for Housing. People would be calling him out for what it is, is a fraudster. We should have the politics of, of division because, well, he knows what side he'd be on. He'd be on the losing side if, if, <laughs> if politics was on the side, if politics was um, the politics of division. I'm very glad that I'm not the only ranty member of the podcast now. <laughs> it's good to see you can pick up the ranting torch. Um, yeah, yeah. Sort of very briefly on it, I'd say that there's a difference between sort of politics of unity and politics of division and whatever the hell we have now, which is division for the sake of division, more than it is kind of division, ideological division. When you look at uh, traditionally, uh, there are things which Democrats and Republicans could always agree on. Stuff like uh, infrastructure, which, you know, we've got an infrastructure bill at the moment, which is being blocked by Democrats. 
uh, two Democrats even in the uh, in Congress. Um, that stuff that traditionally they could always agree on that we need new roads and so. But now there is no unity. There is no they, you know people are blocking Supreme Court and, uh, appointees on both sides and. There's, so I, I do sort of lean a little bit more to the unity, but in a, there should not just be, there should not be division for the sake of division. There can be division of opinion and there can be divisions of qualification, but there are some things which, you know, traditionally parties should always just kind of agree on. Um, so now Macron has backed down over the latest in a long line of of post-Brexit fishing rows. Um, now, this comes after... Oh, Brexit um, fishing, back to 2015 it's, we go. It's a uh, time loop. Um, so, this, um, this, uh, there was a no- negotiation yesterday um, over post-Brexit fishing rights, um, and it's becoming a test for Brexit, post-Brexit relations. Now, the Lord Frost and, um, and the, the, the French ambassador has, has met over this over this um, row, um, after last week a trawler was detained over allegedly not having a um, a fishing license. Now, that was that was alleged, and and it's come about that, that they actually did have a license, um, and and so now fishing boats can catch in in UK waters. That that was decided through um, through the negotiated deal. Um, is it two years ago now? The proposed deal, yeah, um, and so under that Brexit do- deal, the EU and the UK agreed they would give license if boats can show that they fished in other e- others' waters for quote years, and and so that because of, um, that's that's so vague, there's been disagreements on how much evidence is needed, um, um, but um, so smaller vessels that come from French harbours to fish around the Channel Islands, um, find it harder to provide the. The evidence needed, and this is, I think, this is the the problem with having such a rushed process in Parliament. Um, obviously, two years ago now, so mm. it's um, it's 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 the sign of the times. It's almost as if coronavirus isn't done, Brexit isn't done. It's, it's almost as if these very complicated issues you cannot just necessarily seal them off and kind of walk yeah. away from it. Very quickly, then running through um, the South African Party ANC has suffered its worst showing uh, since winning, uh, in an election since winning in 1994. And it's the first time they've failed to get fi- past the 50% threshold on the vote. Uh, so after, I'm sure most people know, serious corruption allegations of the South African government and massive disapproval. Um, what this means for the party, kind of, you know, it's up in the air. I think they're, they're incredibly popular, you know, the party of Mandela, they'll, they'll get back. Um <clears throat> Uh, the definitely the runner-up for the political duck awards goes to to the uh, Ethiopian prime minister who uh, who Facebook suspended uh, a post for for inciting violence. Interestingly, the man he won the twenty nineteen Nobel uh, Peace Prize. So, uh, but now he's inciting violence. So well, we'll... we get caught up in our own contradictions, don't we? Yeah, you know, uh, have, haven't we all been there? Go, you get your Nobel Peace Prize taken away from you for sticking for te- for te- saying to you will, and I quote, bury your enemies. <laughs> Jesus. And, uh, and so next week we're looking forward to um, bringing on two of our um, two, two guests um, to talk about the COP26 um, conference that's undergoing now. We're, we're, on, we're recording this on Friday. It's undergoing in, in Glasgow. Um, we've, had some, we've had some promises made. We've had some fingers pointed. We've had, we've had everything under the sun. Um, but we're going to go into that um, in a bit more detail next week um, yeah. with, with two, two, two guests. So don't get angry at us and be, oh, why have you talked about COP26? We're going to talk about it next week. Uh, it's also it's also a collaboration with News, so thank you very much to News for sort of setting, helping us set this up. Right, and now it is on to the main topic. So firstly, um, Professor, I'd just like to um, ask as an, as an overview, um, if you could outline the three contradictions that you gave in the talk, um, for our listeners who, who couldn't attend um, your talk on the Brazilian government and their, their handling of the, the COVID crisis, because um, I thought it, it summarised um, the political entity that we're dealing with quite aptly. 
Okay, I'm going to try to remember what, what I said a few days ago. I think one of the, the, main, the main goal of my, uh, of my explanation there was to try to argue that the Bolsonaro government is one that, that defies easy categorizations. And that's why I pointed out the fact that we should be looking not just simply at trying to put a label to this government, but actually to highlight some of its complexities and some of its contradictions. So one of them that I think is very, very important is this. This is not a military government, even though it is, uh, uh, to a great extent, uh, it has been colonized or populated by uh, military or people from the military at different levels of government, from uh, ministries to uh, some parliamentarians to mid-ranks, uh, positions in the civil service. So it is a it is a government that is uh, w or that has many uh, people who are from the armed forces, but it, it it does not count as a military government in the sense that it is not uh, being uh, for following uh, the line of uh, of the military, and that's one thing that I think we need to bear in mind is that this is not a kind of clear cut uh, government that is ruled by the military although it speaks to a lot of the agendas and speaks to a lot of interests of, of, of military. The second, uh, I think, contradiction is that this is very often categorized as, um, as a far-right government. And ideologically, it is true that it aligns quite a lot with the far-right ideology. Uh, it has an authoritarian view of the state. Uh, it has an attempt, or it attempts to, to do a kind of a, a historical revisionism of the struggles for democracy, of the, of the country's uh, struggle against uh, the military dictatorship. So it has a very clear far-right agenda. And yet, at the same time, it is a government that has remained hostage to a, a number of political parties who are broadly positioned in the center of the political spectrum. So it is a far-right government, but at the same time, it depends on its survival, on the, uh, the presence of certain center uh, parties, political parties, in, in, in the two chambers of, of, of uh, two houses of the parliament, who are guaranteeing um, its, uh, its survival. And the third key contradiction that I think is also relevant is that, to a great extent, this government has attempted to pursue a neoliberal agenda. But what's paradoxical is that its neoliberal agenda has so far been largely unsuccessful. So what it set out to do initially uh, in terms of applying a, um, a neoliberal agenda of privatization, of deregulation, uh, revising workers' rights, etc., it has so far, to a great extent, failed to do so. And this is due to a number of things. On the one hand, um, the strength of political lobbies on industries that depend and they are reliant on government subsidies. So these are industry lobbies, for, for example, particular, particularly connected with agribusiness, that are dependent on, uh, on government subsidies, that want more state intervention to protect these businesses, and that are not interested in the, in, in, in the, the, in the, the state simply kind of shedding its responsibilities. And the other reason why uh, it has failed to do um, to do uh, to apply this new liberal agenda is also because uh, of the the, the the need to secure the agreement on the part of these political parties that I mentioned just now the political parties in the center who want the state to be present because they need state resources they need the disbursement of funds and bolsonaro himself he needs the disbursement of state funds in order to ensure and to guarantee his re-election. So he's, about, he's in the process of, implement, of revising a cash handout program, which will significantly expand the, 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 the money that's going to be disbursed in the coming months to the poorer sectors of the population. And this is done with a clear electoral strategy, or as part of a clear electoral strategy. So what Bolsonaro wants is to use funds to effectively tilt the balance in favor of his re-election chances. So this is not a this is not a neoliberal state. This is not a state that is retreating from uh, its its engagement with society. This is a state that's becoming even more interventionist, so to speak. So this is another interesting um, contradiction in in the current Bolsonaro government. It's a it's a, a government that purports and was elected originally 
with the intention of being, of applying a neoliberal agenda, and yet is about to begin one of the biggest cash, hand, cash handout programs in Brazilian history. It's interesting that you're saying that, you know, because we sort of, it's often portrayed in the media that it's, you know, Bolsonaro, the mad ideologue, and mm. sort of that's how the kind of media sort of portrays it. But you're saying that there's like this strong pragmatism to the to the man who's sort of doing anything he can to get reelected to maintain power. And obviously, there's an election coming up. And something that was interesting is uh, he appears to already be be being blamed the election system and election fraud in a sort of Trump style, even before we've even had the election. So, do you feel that this election? Could, it could potentially be a threat for Brazilian democracy? Yeah, definitely. This is not going to be a normal election in any way. Because you're right, on the one hand, as I mentioned now, he is apparently trying to play the electoral game. He's trying to increase his electoral chances by expanding his support base, by handing out, by, by developing, rolling out this cash handout program that is aimed at conquering sectors of the population that did not vote for him. So these were traditionally sectors of the population who in the past elections have voted for the, other, the, the workers' party. And he's trying to get their support by developing this cash handout program. And at the same time, he seems to be playing a kind of a, a two-pronged game because he's already uh, advancing a kind of a narrative, a rhetoric that basically intends to support the election, mm. which is already pointing out to the possibility that there may be fraud. So recently, he tried to introduce this idea that the current electoral system in Brazil, which is based on electronic voting, electronic voting booths, he tried to spread this idea, which is misinformation, which is basically fake news, it's, it's a lie, that this is unreliable, that this leads to widespread fraud. There has been, in, 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 in Brazilian history, uh, since it started using these ele electronic boots, there has been no recorded case of systematic fraud. This is widely considered a very secure system. The, all of the experts agree that this is a, a very extremely secure system, and yet Bolsonaro and his supporters have started to spread the idea that these are uh, insecure, that these cannot be audited, which is a lie, uh, and that this is the o an open door for the election to be stolen by others. Again, completely unfounded uh, uh, um, claims, but that have, that have uh, spoken to an anxiety in, 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 uh, among his supporters about his electoral hopes. And so you have, on one hand, a player that wishes to uh, run for election, but on the other hand, a player who's already putting into question the election itself. So it's unpredictable what, what, it, what, what is going to happen. Well, you can predict some things. One of them is, is a, is a, is a US-style situation in which you have an election that Bolsonaro loses, and then he claims that it was frauded and then he starts a process that can go, can turn violent in a similar way that happened in the United States with mm. the invasion of the Capitol, etc. This, this is one of the scenarios. Um, um, but uh, I think there's another issue there that you mentioned, that, that, that you know, this idea of the Bolsonaro, is he a, a ideologue or is he a pragmatist? I think uh, to try to ascribe an intention or a strategy to Bolsonaro is very difficult because very often he seems to be only struggling for his survival, for his immediate survival. And a lot of these decisions uh, are purely based on survival. And I'm not talking simply about political survival, but also his ability to stay out of jail, out of his ability mm. to keep himself and his sons who have also been indicted with several uh, corruption uh, uh, investigations. And, uh, and a lot of these decisions are about ensuring that him, his family, and his close uh, circle of supporters are kept out of, uh, of, of, of criminal investigations. So there is a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, in Bolsonaro that is just simply the day-to-day -day of survival. Yeah. So th that's the pragmatist element. Yeah, so you say that a lot of talking about election fraud was motivated by fear and this idea that, you know, he's doing badly in the polls at the moment. And a main reason that people would highlight for that is his response or lack of response for coronavirus. I saw recently that the Senate in Brazil was saying that he should be charged with um, crimes against humanity for the level he handled it. So do you do you see this, uh, see the way he was handling this as, part of these contradictions you're saying with part of you know the the authoritarian and the neoliberal do you think it was just 
straight-up incompetence. Yeah, there was a mixture of incompetence. There was a, mi a mixture of denialism. But it was not simply denialism. So the, 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 um, the, the COVID response in Brazil was first and foremost, or the, initially, this, the, the reaction was to underplay the severity of the crisis, to underplay the severity of the virus. But at the same time, it became something else. So it's not simply about uh, omissions, about saying this is not important, I'm, we're not going to look at this. But actually what you had, more, and what this, this Senate committee revealed, is that in addition to omissions, you had clear obstructions of policy. So you had, for example, Bolsonaro clearly uh, uh, obstructing the normal response on the part of the health system to the point that he was going against the recommendations of health authorities, that he was promoting social gatherings, that he was disincentivizing the use of masks, that he was uh, deliberately delaying the purchase of vaccines. So this is not simply omission, this is an obstruction. This is, obstru is obstructing the, the, a policy. So the, the, the response uh, to COVID is complex because you have on the one hand an element of denialism is that you know this is just something that's going to happen it's not a big deal it's just a little flu this is something that we can you know that, that, that we can withstand but on the other hand there were elements of obstruction and as the committee the parliamentary commi commi uh, commission uh, parliamentary inquiry commission uh, of the senate revealed there was also a lot of corruption going on in terms of, on the one hand, you had um, the government failing to respond to pharmaceutical companies when they were offering uh, deals for vaccines, while at the same time you had other elements in the Ministry of Health attempting to negotiate vaccines with other pharmaceuticals at inflated prices in order to, to recoup some of the some of the money. So there was an element of corruption there mixed with the obstruction. On the other hand, you had denialism, which made for a very complicated picture. So what this, this Senate uh, inquiry revealed is a, it's, it's a damning indictment of a whole ecosystem around the president that includes the president, but includes the spread of misinformation, that includes corruption on the part of some of certain officials, that includes um, prevarication on the part of the president. When confronted with allegations of corruption, he failed to act. So you have him being indicted or identified. He wasn't indicted because it just, the, 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 the committee um, would only does investigation. But he was identified as having committee, committed nine crimes, mm. one of which, as you were, is crimes against humanity. But there are many others, uh, such as um, a misuse of public funds, uh, charlatanism, because at some point he was promoting hydroxychloroquine as a supposed treatment of COVID, which has been proven by, by, by science to be totally ineffective. And when everyone else in the world had abandoned this idea and had yielded to scientific evidence, Bolsonaro was still saying that, you know, we're going to purchase and produce hydroxychloroquine and distribute it because that's what's going to keep people moving and going about their, their lives during the pandemic. So there's charlatanism, Misuse of public funds, incitement to crime, crimes against humanity. There was a whole, a whole uh, range of crimes that he was, was identified. So just off the back of that, you said um, you rightly said is that, um, there was nine charges brought forward by the Brazilian inquiry. Yeah. Um, with the public prosecutor being a public appointee of Bolsonaro, um, will this charge sheet make a difference on two fronts? First being. Um, a possible impeachment, and the second being the 2022 election. Okay, so there are two things here. So on the one hand, the, the, the criminal prosecution element is one, and that depends on the, the prosecutor general, as you mentioned. The other thing, which is impeachment, it depends on another element of the, of the Brazilian, Brazilian policy, which is the, the speaker of the lower house. So impeachment proceedings can only be initiated if the speaker of this lower house initiates these proceedings. So let's begin with the Prosecutor General. Prosecutor General is a supporter, at least as has been so far an ally of, of Bolsonaro, to the point that he's stalled, um, he has archived, pardon, he has um, failed to advance investigations on a number of allegations, including Bolsonaro himself or his son. So he's been, he's been kind of uh, uh, beating around the bush and not really engaging 
what is said here said in reaction to this to this uh, uh, political uh, to, to this report of the Senate inquiry is that he will act in regards to it now whether what this action is going to be we still don't know there's many ways in which he can act one way in which he can act is um, by sending this out to uh, prosecutors at subnational level so that they can deal with charges regarding other people who are named in this inquiry not Bolsonaro so he may, he may send it to uh, <clears throat> he may send it to other prosecutors subnational prosecutors who will proceed with investigations in regards to other uh, politicians or other uh, parliamentarians or other people who are named in the report. Now, whether you will directly initiate, and he's the only person who can begin a proceeding against Bolsonaro, I find it very unlikely at this stage that he will do so because he's still, um, uh, uh, not, not simply because he's traditionally been an ally of Bolsonaro, but also because we're nearing the kind of the, the end of the term. Uh, so with, with elections coming next year. So the question is whether any criminal proceedings against Bolsonaro himself will only be initiated after he's left office, if it, assuming that he loses election. So that's one thing. The other thing is the impeachment. So one of the crimes that the, the parliamentary inquiry identifies is so-called crimes of responsibility. So these are crimes that the Brazilian constitution says, these are crimes that you commit uh, by failing to do your job. If you're in public office, if you fail to do your job, to do what the, the job that is described to you, you commit crimes of responsibility. And these are the crimes that would lead, that would trigger uh, uh, um, uh, an impeachment proceeding. Now, the impeachment proceedings depend on, as I said, the Speaker of the Lower House of the Congress, who happens to also to be um, an ally of Bolsonaro. He's an ally of Bolsonaro because he is part of these, these, these parties of the center that have pragmatically, and at the moment, they are aligned with the Bolsonaro government. And so far, this has worked out well for Bolsonaro. He has 120, 130 impeachment requests, and this guy, the, lower, the, the, the Speaker of the Lower House, is sitting on them. He's not even denying them or responding. He just has them in, in his drawer. Because the, the, the law allows him to do this, allows him to just sit on them. So, and he's not initiating these proceedings because he doesn't see political viability and because he wants to hold on to this power in which he can hold Bolsonaro and even to the point of saying, you know, I have this sword over you, over your head. You know, if you don't do uh, the kind of the, the, the things that I want you to do, namely disbursement of funds for, for parliamentarians, we have all of these impeachment requests here that could be initiated. This is what happened before with Dilma Rousseff. This is why Dilma Rousseff was impeached, because at some point, the, low, the, the then uh, Speaker of the Lower House at some point said, well, I, ha I have all of this over you, because you didn't do what I wanted you to do, I'm going to initiate this proceeding. So whether proceedings against Bolsonaro are going to be initiated by the current, uh, the current uh, Speaker of the Lower House is very unlikely. For a number of reasons, the, the political climate in Congress is still not unfavorable to Bolsonaro. He's still delivering the goods. And by delivering the goods, I mean he is literally delivering the goods. He's, he's pouring out loads of money to these parliamentarians to ensure their loyalty. And at the same time, the fact that we're getting close to an election year also makes the impeachment process more unlikely. Mm. So uh, you talked a lot about how he's being... Uh, maybe not propped up, but has a strong alliance with these centre parties and, you know, kind of not exactly hand-holding cooperation, more sort of throwing, throwing money at the situations and fix, uh, fixes. Um, I guess I've got two questions from this, but I remember, you know, before Bolsonaro got elected and talk, uh, when it was the World Cup of 2014 and then when it was the Olympics in 2016 and people, yet again, talking about this widespread corruption mm. that was sort of a part of this and saying this is intrinsic within the Brazilian government. Um, so do you think that this is necessarily a... What Bolsonaro is doing here is necessarily a divergence from the way that the Brazilian presidents have acted or it's just sort of a continuity of a corrupt system? Yeah, well... Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which the, the, the political system in, 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 um, in, in Brazil is organized that favors corruption. One of them is um, the financing of elections. So candidates 
depends on donations from, say, private companies uh, and other interests in order to be able to carry out their, 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 elect, their electoral campaigns and actually be elected. So that's one thing. There's also the way in which the parliament is organized. The parliament in Brazil has become, in a way, kind of a clearinghouse of different interests. So it's a kind of a very, uh, it's a politics very much oriented in terms of what can I get from the president in order to guarantee my support. So the, 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 all of these kind of, uh, the, the, the parties in the center that I mentioned, a lot of them, they have no clear ideology. They have no clear uh, kind of a, a, a program of ideas, of proposals for the country. They are there to serve interests. And this favors the kind of politics in which they will exchange their loyalty in the, uh, if they receive parliamentary amendments that can guarantee funds for particular projects in their constituencies. Mm -hmm. So, and this has happened. So these are, these are groups, these are parties that will be loyal to whoever holds the strings of the parties. So they were aligned with Lula da Silva. They were aligned with Dilma. They were. They are aligned with, 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 with uh, uh, Bolsonaro because he's the one who can who holds the strings to the budget. So we can actually say, here's the money that you can go and deliver to your constituency, so that will allows you to be reelected. So in a way, there's a system there of which Bolsonaro has not been able to depart. Mm. And it's interesting because he claimed, when he was elected, that he was against the old politics of corruption. And he still claimed that my government is the cleanest in the history of Brazil, which is patently untrue, you know, as has been reveal, revealed recently with uh, multi-million uh, 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 reals of, uh, of uh, secret budgets that were being disbursed to uh, uh, select parliamentarians in exchange for their votes, in exchange for their support. Um, so there's a number of situations in which you can still the whole, the kind of the old politics of which is kind of based on corruption, which is based on a kind of favor for favor, and the exchange of favors. This is still very much alive in Bolsonaro governments. Not to mention, not to mention, the way in which Bolsonaro and his sons have been involved in other uh, accusations for which there's already mounting evidence that they were indeed also engaging in corrupt practices um, in their own um, uh, in their own constituencies in terms of, for example, employing uh, ghost uh, uh, officials. So they would employ officials uh, in name only in order to recoup part of their salaries. So there's a, there's a whole uh, system of uh, a corrupt system of employment of officials in their own constituencies that's being investigated and it hasn't been trialed but there are there's mounting evidence that's, that, that, that this was in place so Bolsonaro, the idea that Bolsonaro was inaugurating a new politics free of corruption is a myth mm. is an illusion yeah, sorry you have okay, um, so looking forward to the election um, I think Bolsonaro is, is set to give the equivalent of $5.3 billion um, in, this, in this package, this scheme, that starts this month. Um, this is targeted at, at unprivileged, underprivileged groups in, in Brazil. Um, very much the, the constituencies that would vote, tend to vote for Lula da Silva of the Workers' Party. So with, with Lula da Silva on one hand being over 50% in the, all of the polls so far, how will this, this scheme change the balance of the polls and, and, and change the framework in which we're, we're looking at the, the election. Yeah, it's likely to have an impact. Uh, we're talking about a country where the levels of poverty are still staggering, where the, the money that uh, Bolsonaro promises to, um, to provide to these groups is really going to make a difference for a lot of families between starving and, and having food on the table. So we're talking about money that will save lives, that will feed people. We talk about millions of families are going to be impacted. So this is bound to have an impact in terms of their, of their, um, of their electoral decisions a year from now. Whether it's going to be the determining factor, I don't know. Because one of the things that has been discussed um, in the past few days with the, the approval of this package is what impact this will have in terms of inflation. 
So the money that people will get is probably going to be offset, at least in part, by mounting inflation. So people may receive more money, but things are going to become more expensive at the same time. So there's a lot of debate still on what is going to be the impact of pouring so much money, not simply pouring much money into, into, into the system, because this is something that also uh, uh, Lula the Silva government also did with a previous cash handout scheme, but also the fact that in order to secure the money for this, uh, for this cash handout scheme, Basically, Bolsonaro's government had to kind of blow the ceiling of allowable expenses. So there is a rule uh, in Brazilian law that says that the, the amount of the, the growth of the expenses can only has to be limited and has to be indexed to the inflation. And basically, what they did was some creative accounting in order to enable them to basically spend more than they should be spending. And markets have reacted. So international markets have reacted. Particularly, markets are worried right now whether the government is fiscally responsible and whether it will just, with pure electoral gains, whether it will lead to uh, uh, a situation, for example, an increase in public deficit, whether it will lead to um, uh, rising inflation, as I mentioned. Another important aspect in Brazilian economy is the fact that Brazilian economy is dependent on the dollar exchange value of the dollar. And one of the, 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 the consequences in the past few weeks, and particularly now, is that the dollar has become, has become more expensive for Brazilians. And this impacts an, an, a lot of Brazilian uh, 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 economy because the Brazilian uh, people are reliant on a lot of imported goods. Um, starting, for example, with, 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 uh, with um, um, electronics, but also all sorts of, of processed goods that are dependent on the dollar exchange, which means that life is just going to become more expensive uh, and inflation uh, uh, may rise. So we're still to see what's going to be the consequence of this cash handout scheme, but certainly it will have an impact on the election. Whether it will be a clinching factor, it's still, it's still to be seen. And it's also not safe to assume that everyone who will receive the cash handout will necessarily vote for Bolsonaro. No, because people, you know, people are not fools. You know, they will not simply vote for Bolsonaro just because Bolsonaro gave them money. You know, um, it's a bit more complex than that. But certainly, it is aimed at expanding his electoral base, and it will have an impact. Or uh, it will. It will have an impact, particularly, as I mentioned, because uh, the constituency we're talking about, the people we're talking about, our tradition, are in the past few elections, have been a, 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 a kind of a, a solid Lula da Silva vote. So we'll talk about the poor people in the northeast states, the north states, who are kind of more marginalized, more disadvantaged groups. So, yes, some impact there will be. Uh, whether it will be a decisive one, I'm, I'm still not sure. Um, it's interesting that you talk about um, the kind of the dependence on the dollar and, you know, a lot of talk, uh, you know, this sort of disappeared divide between, you know, handing out money to help those most disadvantaged, but also Brazil's sort of weird international standing in that kind of wanting to be a superpower, which, you know, through size and population, it has the ability to, but kind of for many reasons, obviously, not kind of not being at the table and, um I guess Bolsonaro is very interesting with that because, you know, he's just as internationally divisive as he is um, divisive within Brazil. And particularly on, uh, you know, with the dollar, his sort of perceived good relationship with Trump and now a sort of a much more hostile administration under Biden, but also globally with the Amazon rainforest and, you know, Bolsonaro's flat out rejection to adopt climate change policy and, you know, accelerating kind of clearing of, you know, the... Uh, Amazon rainforests for, you know, the kind of, you know, mainland for Brazilians. Uh, so do you, so do you feel with Bolsonaro and Bolsonaro's, you know, pretty rapid surge in, in kind of popularity that got him elected in the first place, do you feel that out of this kind of conflict between Brazilian interests and international interests and this sort of frustration with Brazilian status in the world? Mm. Yeah, you see, you have seen with not simply with, with COVID-19, although COVID-19 highlighted, the COVID-19 response highlighted, but even before COVID-19, 
um, Brazil was on the fast track to becoming an international pariah uh, in the way in which it conceived um, the uh, climate change and climate adaptation policies, the, um, the way in which it, um, the, the government or this government has intentionally uh, stepped up, accelerated the clearing of the Amazonian rainforest, which has been accompanied by uh, widespread deregulation, so the dismounting of, uh, uh, of environmental protection laws, uh, um, the hollowing out of uh, protection mechanisms uh, in, in the Ministry of the Environment. So this is an example of how uh, Bolsonaro's government has gone a kind of a, a counter-cycle to what is happening in the in uh, in the world, you know, with increased recognition of the need for decarbonization. Um, so this is just one example of how Bolsonaro is becoming Bolsonaro's government, or Brazil under Bolsonaro became uh, uh, completely against what the tendency in 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 international politics has become. And um, so this is bound to increase. Uh, uh, tensions. We saw, for example, that one of the things that uh, um, the Brazilian foreign policy did initially was to begin a disengagement with regional um, re regional organizations, with the neighbor, neighbor, neighboring countries. Um, there were a lot of in, uh, in, uh, regional organizations like Mercosur or, or, or others, and Brazil used to be in a leadership position, as it befits one of the big powers of uh, in, 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 in South America, but it began a disengagement, which is also based on um, um, an ideological uh, prejudice. So one of the things that initially very clearly the, the, the Brazilian foreign policy approach under Bolsonaro was a kind of a, 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 an attempt to go against what they term globalism. So this idea that, you know, we need to abandon all of these international fora which are just kind of the, this globalist, leftist agenda. So for them, particularly for the, pro, the, the previous uh, uh, um, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, for him, the idea of globalism, by which he meant multilateral discussions, cooperation, uh, participating in international organizations, for him, this was all part of a kind of a leftist agenda that he was going against. So instead, he wanted to have a more strongly nativist policy, which kind of very closely resembles what Trump attempted to do in his own administration. It's, it's, uh, Bolsonaro is very clearly, sometimes very eerily, tries to mimic uh, what Trump did in the United States, particularly kind of its, its skepticism, its hostility towards international organizations, its hostility towards multilateral arrangements preferring instead to deal with kind of bilaterally, bilateral relations. So all of this is meant, in response to your question, that um, Brazil has become a pariah, and Brazil has created tensions mm. in many respects in regards to other uh, countries, not just in the region, but also in the world. You know, and the result is that uh, Bolsonaro has become a bit of a laughable uh, 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 character in international fora, uh, to the point, for example, that he couldn't uh, attend uh, in when he was in, in UN assembly uh, um, uh, quite recently. He couldn't attend official meals because he hasn't been vaccinated, because he has refused to be vaccinated. So he wasn't allowed in. So he had to eat his meals and he had to eat a slice of pizza in the sidewalk. This is true. He had to eat a pizza in the sidewalk because he wasn't allowed in official um, meals because he wasn't vaccinated, he refused to be vaccinated. And he's become a kind of a, a pariah that no one really wants to talk with him. He's seen as a kind of a, an odd figure who's kind of advanced these outlandish positions. Even a few weeks ago, in the UN Assembly, he was still peddling hydroxychloroquine. Mm. Okay? Um, so all of this is, has meant that Brazil has, 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 has raised tensions so that the Brazilian diplomacy after Bolsonaro has a long way to go in order to recover all of the things that have been lost in this, in this past few years. You, you painted a very, a very bleak picture for Brazil, and although the, the figures say that, that De Silva has, has, has got this in the back, the election, it's this autarchist movement that, that Bolsonaro is, is taking to Brazil. It's, 
this is North Korean territory. Mm. And, I, and I wondered, I, I don't want to be too pessimistic this, this, this late on a... For anyone who's listened to much of this podcast will know that it always ends up going very pessimistic. <laughs> yeah. normally, it's, normally it's my fault, so I'm glad it's you this time. <laughs> um, but it's, th- this, is, this is quite scary, the stuff that you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's North Korea territory. There's still quite diff- there's, there's still uh, clear differences. You know, there is a civil society in Brazil mm. that is active, that is uh, resisting. You still have opposition in Brazil. Uh, you have uh, actually, you know, have an opposition leader who so far is ranking higher in the polls, mm. much higher. You have a, a civil society that is mobilizing. You have many dissenting voices who are allowed still to express their views, unlike, unlike North Korea. Um, this is not to say that there may not be dissenting voices in North Korea, but you know they are not allowed to speak up. Uh, but in the case of um, uh, in the case of Brazil, there are these dissenting voices. There is still a degree of political freedom. There is still a degree of democracy, although democracy, democratic institutions are under threat. There is still democracy. There is still going to be an election. The same institutions, the institutions are still working. For example, the judicial institutions are still working. The Senate uh, inquiry, it's the proof that you know parts of the institution are still working. You can still have senators who are saying, well, this president is should be indicted for a number of very serious crimes. So it's very different from a, a North Korea situation. That said, Democracy is in the threat. It's not yet destroyed, but is being undermined, is being eroded. Um, we, should, we should be worried about that. We should be worried about kind of the slow burn coup that Bolsonaro wants to create. You know, it's not going to be very, very, very. Um, uh, a lot of people, when he came to power, say, oh, he's going to do a military coup. He's going to kind of uh, uh, ask the military to. Uh, put the, the, the Supreme Court uh, uh, justices in jail or to close down Congress. That's not what happened. Where he basically said he co-opted key elements in the system in order to maintain, to keep his survival. He's undermining democracy in, in democracy in a number of ways. Freedom of expression, yes, it is being threatened. You know, you get people who are, who are criticizing government. You know, they may be intimidated by the prosecutor general, for example, for uh, advancing certain views that may be seen as insulting or that may be seen as detrimental to the president. But you're still, still not in a police state in which people are thrown in jail for, um, for saying their views. In fact, what's interesting is that you get people being detained and indicted because they are spewing out hate. They are spewing out, spewing out fake news. And very often these are Bolsonaro supporters. So people, for example, who are spreading misinformation about COVID, who are incentivizing that people uh, rise and take arms against Congress. These are Bolsonaro supporters. And these are the ones who are saying, oh, we're not allowed to speak our minds. Why? Because they're saying, lock, lock up the, the, the Supreme Court justices. And they surprise when the police comes knocking at the door and say, well, you're, you know, you're, you're threatening a, a, a public authority. And that's a crime, you know. So w- it's interesting to see that the, the 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 complaints about the freedom of expression very often come from Bolsonaro supporters and from Bolsonaro himself. When Bolsonaro uh, organized um, um, uh, demonstrations in support of himself in September, one of the main ideas that was being mobilized in these demonstrations was: we need freedom, we need the ability to say what we want. So, but this is a very, kind of a very far-right way to instrumentalize freedom, mm. which is basically the idea that freedom is basically saying whatever you want, no matter how insulting or libelous or criminal it is that you're saying. So the ability to spew out hatred, the ability to incite uh, to crime, that's their understanding of freedom. And that's why it's interesting that... Um, you have political freedom, you have freedom of expression in Brazil, but actually those who are complaining that they don't have enough freedom are Bolsonaro supporters. That's, um, <clears throat> that's very interesting. Um, I'm sort of aware of the time we're going to sort of start wrapping this up, but I think we'll leave with one last question and 
Unfortunately, it is a meaty one, and you are perfectly allowed to just sort of sign go, oh, I don't know, mate, and it's obviously the response to it. But, um, so, you know, there could be a situation where Bolsonaro loses, and, you know, maybe there's peaceful transition, maybe it's not peaceful transition, maybe he wins another term. Who knows? Future's the future. Uh, but if he does go, what do you think the legacy of the Bolsonaro government is going to be? Well, what's what's going to be the long-term impact on Brazil? Well, Bolsonaro may be gone, but Bolsonarism, if you want to call use that word, is certainly not going to be it's going to be gone. Similar to what happened with the case of Trump, you know, Trump left thus far, be uh, good, but the ideas that he mobilized, the ideas that he helped to energize, are still very much alive. And I think similar to what to what um, um, to, to, to that is what you see in the case of Brazil with Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro rode a wave of resentment. Um, a wave of resentment that was very much connected with um, a white, privileged, middle-class uh, resentment that was reacting against the gains that more underprivileged people had acquired in, in previous governments. And at the same time, Bolsonaro has energized a number of views about society, about democracy, that are highly detrimental to the democratic process, are highly detrimental to politics. So, um, ideas, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, or have been always present in Brazilian society, okay? Bolsonaro did not create these ideas, but he certainly helped to energize them. He gave them legitimacy. The point that you could have a president spewing out racist ideas or misogynist ideas in, in campaign and still be elected is led to greater legitimacy being given to these ideas. And this encouraged other people to advance these ideas. Okay? So we have a much more polarized, much more fragmented political scenario in Brazil now. We have the, the political debate has been uh, has been become more extreme with uh, with uh, incitement to violence with actually violence being committed with uh, um, the, the, the uh, uh, previously disadvantaged groups who had acquired certain certain gains in, 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 in the past being the target of hatred being the target of victimization and violence and this is not going to work going to go away simply if we replace bolsonaro because the people who he has energized, the ideas who he has um, uh, legitimized in a way or lent credence to, they're still going to continue uh, for for the foreseeable future, and they need to be um, they, they need to be addressed and they need to be tackled. So it's not enough to get rid of Bolsonaro, although the priority needs to be, for the sake of Brazilian democracy, needs to be to get rid of Bolsonaro to prevent his his, his, his re-election. But that's certainly not going to be the end of the struggle against a kind of more just and more fair, mm. uh, fairer society in Brazil. Yeah, well, um, thank, thank you. Uh, that was incredibly interesting. I'm sure Christian will kind of back me up on Absolutely that. Absolutely excellent. And I'm sure our listeners will thoroughly enjoy it as well. Yeah, the, um, yeah so we're going to wrap it up there. Um, I could talk about this for another hour, to be honest. But now on to the Political Duck Awards. Now, this week's Political Duck Award goes to the new Coke Award for shitty rebrands, and it goes to Facebook for changing their name to Meta, because that was the problem. It's the wrong name. <laughs> I mean, Facebook's Facebook. It's, um, the, and I think it's, it's... I don't like to use the word sinister, but calling, calling, your, calling a social media platform Meta is... It shows the direction that the the company wants to go. I think it wants to get get a hand in all of our in our lives if it doesn't already. Mm. I've heard that the reason they're doing this is so they can't be sued because you can't sue through Facebook if they're called Meta. I mean, talk about loopholes and loopholes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very odd. Very, uh, very odd stuff. Uh, so, congrats, Mark. You're a robot, aren't you? So if I can just download this award straight onto your software, I don't even have to bother making one, do I? Yeah, uh, I enjoyed the social network, but you seem like a bit of a terrible human being. So there you go. Enjoy your award. And uh, that's the show for this week. Thank you very much for listening, as always. Follow our Instagram, as always, to know when new stuff is going on. And we will see you next week.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Political Duck Awards. Woo!